From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. For more than 10 years, hundreds of people seeking asylum in Australia have been forcibly and indefinitely detained on Manus Island in Papua New Guinea and Nauru. The Australian government has made it clear that none of them will be resettled here. But a group of refugee advocates have developed a new plan to help them, involving a third country, Canada. One of those advocates is Assistant Professor Dr Laura Bethbug. She's spent the last three years trying to help an Iranian refugee who's become like a brother to her. Today, the story of Laura Beth and Ali. It's Thursday, December 16. Laura Beth, you have been working with a group of refugees that Australia has detained on Manus Island, trying to get them off that island to your home in Canada. There is one refugee in particular who I want to ask you about, Ali. When did you first talk to him? Yeah, so I first spoke with Ali early in 2019, and he was one of a a group of men in Manus who had found out that there were people in Toronto who were interested in privately sponsoring uh, refugees. Uh, I was 23 when I arrived in Australian uh, detention centre, and now I'm 32. And every second I was just thinking about it, that am I going to make it? Am I going to survive? Ali really stood out for me. He was just so intelligent, thoughtful, just his, his sheer determination. 2013, I left Iran and then I came to uh, Indonesia. So policy was transferring all the rival by boat to offshore. That's how I end up to offshore detention center, which was in Manos Island. Since that time, I've been here. You know, he said, I want to go to law school. I want to be a human rights lawyer. And um, I want to go to university. And as an academic, I just really connected with this and thought all of this uh, intelligence and talent and thoughtfulness is just being wasted. And I would love to get him here and see what happens to him. I was lucky to have wonderful people like Laura Beth. She's been helping everyone, not only from our people, all around the world. And so how did this project begin? How did you start trying to help these people who were seeking asylum in Australia? So I was a lecturer at the University of Sydney, and in early 2014, I began a project looking at faith-based organizations who were working with unaccompanied minor asylum seekers. And I was interviewing people that had um, just returned from Manus and Nauru, and the stories that they were telling were just absolutely horrific. The violence, the bashings and the killing on Manus Island are still shrouded in mystery. Physical and sexual violence, it just, you know, it really destroyed me. In the past, prisoners have sewn their lips together in protest. Last year, during unrest inside, outsiders broke in and beat one man to death. But it also was really supremely frustrating because as an academic, I felt like I wasn't doing enough that was concrete. So shortly after that, my family moved to Toronto and I had researched the private sponsorship of refugees program, which is this extraordinary program unique in the world where any five 
Canadian citizens or permanent residents can get together and sponsor a refugee to Canada. So as long as they raise a minimum amount of funds, which is about 18,000 Australian dollars, which all goes to support the refugee during their first year in Canada. So as soon as we received our permanent residence after we'd moved to Canada, we said, we really want to do this. And my husband also, his grandmother, uh, she was a Holocaust survivor, and she had been given refuge by Australia in 1938. So this was something that was quite important to, to both of us. And so the refugee who you're helping right now, Ali, how long have you been trying to get him to Canada? So it's been quite a long process. So, I mean, I first started talking to Ali in, you know, sort of early 2019. I know a lot of it through our friends that they introduced me to her. This He advised me about this process, and that's how I get in contact. And there are different sort of milestones along the way where you think, okay, this is wonderful, this is happening. So when you submit the application and the Canadian government acknowledges it, that's one wonderful thing because you've raised the money, it's there, um, and you know it's going to sort of go forward. I'm actually lucky and I was lucky to have this option that I can go to Canada on their sponsorship program. And then once interviews actually started, that was another huge milestone. They just do uh, all the paperwork. Yeah, it's just unbelievable and incredible effort that they're putting in. And then when Ali had his interview and he felt like it went well, and then he received confirmation that, that he would be going to Canada, I think that was, at least for me, was a really important moment. Personally, myself, I still have not informed my family because, I don't know, I just felt that I need to go and get there and then inform my family. After things happen here, we just can't believe it. Can't believe until that happened. But, you know, I think... For, for Ali, he has not actually believed that this was going to happen until he received his plane ticket from the IOM, the International Organization for Migration, because he has been burnt so many times. You know, I remember him telling me one time there was a ship parked right off the coast of Manus and the guard said to them, oh, look, here they are. They're coming to get you to take you to Australia, which was just sort of a cruel joke, right, that they were playing on them. Oh, how can I bring back those horrible and terrible days that I had. I can't believe that I'm leaving and I can't believe I made it to the point where I'm getting out in a life. So Ali's visa is approved and he's got a flight to Toronto. What happens as he makes his way to the airport? So Ali had his ticket. He had his Canadian travel visa. He was on the way to the airport. We thought that this was going to um, happen just as we'd been imagining it for the past uh, three years. And it wasn't until he was at the gate and watching people board the plane that he found out that he would not be on it. Every single people came here, like ordinary people, they just straight come. And then they got their check-in and that's it, they left, except us. And when it came to our turn, the advisor, sorry, you need to fill this form online. He finds out um, that he needs to have some sort of transit document to transit through the UK. So this had come in, I think, just three days before. We told them, 
Sir, we are refugees. We've been here for nine years. We have no idea. We are not citizen of any country whatsoever. So this was a huge problem, and there was not time for them to complete it uh, before the plane took off. Because part of the requirement is was asking you to scan your passport. But which passport? We have no. We have no passport. Which passport? They were talking about. We have no idea. So Ali and the others were literally standing at the boarding gate watching everyone board this plane and watch the plane taxi and take off without them on it. I almost had a heart attack. How can you guys do such like that? This is a very big messed up. We just lost our flight just like that. I mean, I just, I don't even have words for how, how gutted we all were. And I think for Ali, it also just confirmed everything that he thought about the process and his poor luck and what happens to people who are in PNG and just that he would never get out of there. And now, actually at the moment, we are right at the airport. We have nowhere to go. We have no place to go as well as we don't know what is coming next. We'll be back after this. Need a reminder of what political leadership looks like? Australia's master of political satire, Jonathan Biggins, is back embodying the iconic Paul Keating, visionary, reformer and rabble-rouser. Due to overwhelming demand, one-man comedy The Gospel According to Paul is returning to the Opera House, on from the 4th to 23rd of June for its final term ever. Secure your tickets now at sydneyoperahouse.com for an unforgettable evening. For longtime editor Winnie Dunn, there were a few rules she followed when writing her debut novel. I really don't subscribe to writing for the sake of, you know, trauma dumping or getting your trauma out. That's what a therapist is for. Please, <laughs> please go see a therapist. We're very pro therapy on yeah, this. That's, no, if that's what you're using writing for. I'm Michael Williams, and on this week's very therapeutic episode of Read This, I chat with Winnie Dunn. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Laura Beth, Ali wasn't able to get on his flight to Canada, which obviously is a huge disappointment to him and and to you. So can you tell me what happened next? What did he do? What did you do? So after that, um, we we were all uh, scrambling. So everyone who's part of this partnership, we were all trying to figure out why this bureaucratic snafu had happened and ensure that it did not happen again. So the first thing was to make sure that, that Ali and the others were taken someplace COVID-free because we didn't want them to then wait another week, go back to the airport, and then have someone test positive for COVID and not be able to travel. Um, It was very difficult because they had all, you know, given away clothes that they knew they weren't going to wear anymore to, to friends. They had given away a lot of their possessions. They really had nowhere to sort of go back to. So we had to make sure that they had some someplace to stay and eventually, we booked Ali's flights for a week later. That must be such a relief. Oh, my God. It is just, it was such a, a weight lifted off. Ali went to the airport. He tested negative for COVID. He went to the gate. But this time, he sent me pictures of him as he was walking onto the plane. I couldn't even sleep last night because of the excitement I had. Because I did, I don't know, I mean, like... You're getting your life and freedom back. You know, it's just a very strange feeling. I don't know how to describe it. I mean, freedom actually looks like something when you look at people. 
um, you can tell the difference between someone who has been held captive for eight years and someone who is sitting on a plane who knows that they are now free. Like you can actually see it in their body, in their face. And to see like a genuine smile, you know, as, as Ali said, I'm feeling something that I haven't felt for eight years. And I think it's happiness. I didn't know that I eventually could get my freedom back one day. That's why it's a very strange feeling. And I actually spoke with other people. They have they had exactly the same, uh, you know, emotional feeling that I have. It's like, it's, it's very strange and I don't know how to describe it. I'm so excited. And so what happens when Ali arrives in Canada? What's in place and what will life be like for him? When Ali steps off the plane, we no longer call him a refugee. We call him a newcomer. So newcomers are permanent residents. And within three years, he can apply to be a citizen of Canada. So he receives full health care benefits, all of the social welfare benefits that any Canadian permanent resident receives. And so it's not long until you actually go to the airport yourself to meet Ali. Uh, How are you feeling about it? I am just excited and and overwhelmed. It seems a bit surreal. You know, after all of these years of of literally talking to him every single day on on WhatsApp. Um, So like any relationship that evolves over time, we've really been there for each other. I was also um, looking back to the first time when when he said, can I call you Abji, which means um, sister in, in Farsi. And um, can you call me Dadash, which means brother? So um, I actually don't call him Ali. I call him Dadash. So to actually see him in the flesh, um, you know, walking through the airport, I just, I can't even imagine what that's going to be like. So, you know, I keep imagining what that's going to be like for him when the wheels lift up and he takes off and... He finally knows that he's free. Sorry. I can't imagine what that's going to be like for him, and I cannot wait to welcome him here with open arms. So today is the day that Ali arrives. I have been cooking all afternoon, making Persian chicken and rice and Um, but I wanted it to smell like home when he walks in the door. I I cannot believe that that after so many years, I'm going to see him walk through that airport gate. So, Dadash, how are you feeling today? Um, First, I have to say so, so thanks. Thanks I can't really... I could never imagine that I can be here today. I'm still processing everything. (laughs) I can't even imagine. I could never imagine that one day I could have my freedom like that. I'm so happy. I'm so, so excited and so happy that I'm here. People are so lovely in this country and I'm so lucky to be in this country today. I I mean, the moment for me when it was just really special was when you were able to call your parents. I... You know, I have, uh, like I told you, I didn't tell them because my mom usually thinks a lot. And so last night when we were together and called them, they were like shocked. <laughs> and I was standing there next to you. <laughs> Ali, where are you now? And I said, I'm in Canada. 
Uh, really? Yeah, really, you see? Laura is there, you can see Laura right now. And then, oh, really? And then that's why they were really shocked. And they were like, yeah. they couldn't believe. They never knew that, that, that I'm coming here. I'm, I just can't believe you're sitting here at my kitchen table. And I love you, Dad. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. So, thank you so much. Ali is one of seven refugees who have been resettled in Canada as part of Operation Not Forgotten, with support from the Refugee Council of Australia. There are currently more than 1,400 people still indefinitely detained in Australia's offshore processing system. Winnie Dunn has made a career out of helping others find their literary voice, and now it's her turn in the spotlight. This week on Read This, join me, Michael Williams, as I chat with Winnie about her debut. Find it wherever you listen. Also in the news today, New South Wales health officials are anticipating the state could record up to 25,000 cases of COVID-19 a day by the end of January. The state recorded a daily COVID-19 case increase of 70% yesterday, with 1,360 new COVID-19 cases and one death. And in Victoria, mandatory vaccination requirements have now been scrapped in certain settings. People are no longer required to provide proof of vaccination status in retail settings and places of worship. Vaccination requirements remain for hospitality venues, as well as health and beauty services. 7am is a daily show from the monthly and the Saturday paper. It's produced by Elle Marsh, Cara Jensen-McKinnon, Anu Hasbold and Alex Gow. Our senior producer is Ruby Schwartz and our technical producer is Atticus Basto. Brian Compo mixes the show. Our editor is Osman Faruqi. Eric Jensen is our editor-in-chief. Our theme music is by Ned Beckley and Josh Hogan of Optimum Audio. Tomorrow we're releasing a special episode of 7am. It's a look back at some of the biggest stories of the year called The Sound of 2021. I'm Ruby Jones and thanks for listening to 7am this year. It's been another huge news year and another tough one for many of us. I hope that everyone can find a bit of time to relax this summer. Have a safe and happy holidays and see you next year.